It's on page 944 and 945 of the Pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, uh, you can feel free to grab one of these. Uh, it's our gift to you. The, the kind of yellow colored ones are ours. The brown ones belong to Portico, so please don't run off with one of those, but feel free to take one of these mustardy colored ones. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word, and it's the good news of the gospel, of what God has done for us in Christ. And we will see some parallels between that passage and the passage that we'll be looking at in Genesis. You can turn way back to the front of your Bibles, uh, to page 42 if you have the the Pew Bible. Sorry, page 44 uh, if you have the Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 through 26, and we'll, we'll read that in a moment. <clears throat> when 1841, there was a young Englishman, he was 25 years old, and he had the whole world before him. He was looking at a successful career in Parliament, uh, he was the heir to a fortune, and uh, his father was a banker, and he was the oldest son, and he was about to, to get a huge inheritance. And overnight, the family lost everything. They went from riches to rags in one day. Some bad business deals, some, some poor management, and everything was lost. 
he would write in his biography about how he was deeply wounded by this and how he would carry these wounds with him for the rest of his life. 32 years later, after this event happened, this is what he wrote. Taking a moral and spiritual view of it, I have not the least doubt it was all for the best. If my father's affairs had prospered and I had never been ruined, my life, of course, would have been a very different one. I should have probably gone into Parliament very soon. I should never have been a clergyman, never have preached, written a tract, or a book. Perhaps I might have made shipwreck in spiritual things. So I do not mean to say at all that I wish it to have been different from what it was. All I mean to say is that I was deeply wounded, suffered deeply, and I do not think I have ever recovered in body and mind from the effect ever since I left Cheshire. I have never felt at home, but a sojourner and a dweller in a lodging, and I never expect to feel anything else as long as I live. That man's name was J.C. Ryle. He's one of my heroes. You've probably heard me quote from him before. We named our son after him. But Ryle's story is not an unfamiliar one. A story of losing everything, of going from riches, of going from a promise of an inheritance to rags overnight in one event. Joseph, right? He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost the inheritance. He lost the promises that were coming to the descendants of Jacob when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. But God was with him. He was raised up in Potiphar's house. He had regained maybe some things that he lost. But then what happened? Potiphar's wife came after him, falsely accused. Back to, back to square one, right? Lost everything. He, now he's in prison. But God was with him. He's in prison with Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker. And they dream dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams and the dreams come true. And the chief cupbearer gets out. And Joseph said, hey, just, just remember me to Pharaoh, right? Tell him about what I've done so I can get out of here. But for two whole years, Joseph is forgotten. Until Pharaoh dreams a dream. And it's the dream that is about the famines that are about to come. And suddenly the chief cupbearer says, oh yeah, there's this guy, right, in prison, falsely accused, who did nothing, who was sold by his brothers. He gets out, he interprets the dreams, he tells Pharaoh, hey, I'm your guy, right? I got this plan. Let's, let's save the whole world, right, with this famine that's about to come. And then we've seen the drama of playing out with him and his brothers. And today is the culmination of that story. It's one last showdown between Joseph and his brothers. One final test for Joseph. And one final request that he makes. Let's go to the passage, Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, 
It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been in church or you've been around Christians and had conversations with them about bad things happening in the world, you've probably heard verse 20 of Genesis chapter 50 quoted before. It's probably the most quoted verse in the whole book of Genesis, especially among those who have a a very high view of God's sovereignty. And it's a very important verse for us as Christians in very many ways in our lives. But we often only quote the first half of the verse. I don't want to lose sight here of the bigger picture. And that picture is how God is at work fulfilling his promises to his people. Without that context, this verse about God meaning the evil that the brothers meant for good is just a nice theological concept. It's just something that we can just extract and talk about it on its own. But like all of the theology that we do, we can't do that. (laughs) We can't take one theological concept and extract it from the rest of the Bible and just have all these little boxes all over the place. It all needs to fit together in one big story to see how God is fulfilling his redemptive purposes for his people. If I was going to do a topical sermon on the topic of God's sovereignty, I would probably choose this verse. I would probably start with this verse. It's one of the clearest declarations of God's sovereignty in the whole Bible. But we're not preaching topically through Genesis. We're preaching straight through Genesis, and we're talking about different topics. But we're seeking to be faithful to the text. We're seeking to be faithful to the whole context of Genesis. So I'm not going to isolate this verse from the rest of the passage. We have to look at this concept of, of God's sovereignty here in light of the rest of the story. And I hope this is a lesson for us in how we read our Bibles. Even our favorite theological topics, even the things we love to go back to, they can't be read in a vacuum. You can't just say, you know, 
God's love or God's justice or whatever. You can't just talk about those things on their own. We have to look at it in the bigger context. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, If you want to hear a phenomenal sermon that is a topical sermon about this verse, and it talks about Romans 8, 28 that we just read and some other verses, Ligon Duncan, uh, he's the president of the seminary that I went to that James is going to, L-I-G-O-N, Ligon Duncan, God, Suffering, and Evil. Just Google it. It's the first thing that comes up. Ligon Duncan, God, Suffering, and Evil. Phenomenal sermon. He gets into the problem of evil and talks about all these things that we wrestle with. Um, and you know, how can God be all-powerful and all-good and evil still exists? He really dives deep into that. And we do, we all wrestle with these questions at some level, whether it's personal you know, why have bad things happened to me in my life? Or whether it's kind of out there in the world, right? Like, why are all these bad things happening in our world? We all wrestle with these types of questions. And I think we have three options for how we respond. The first is that we can just ignore it, right? We can pretend that evil doesn't exist. We can pretend that things aren't really as bad as they are. We can just say, hey, let's just, you know, think positive thoughts. We can acknowledge it and kind of do the same thing, like, okay, it's there, uh, and, but I don't really want to deal with it, so I'm just going to still think positive thoughts and hope it you know, maybe goes away. And the third thing we can do is we can embrace it, and we can see that God has good purposes, and that God is still in control, and he is still on his throne in the midst of our suffering, and in the midst of the suffering in this world. And that third option is what we're going to see in our passage. Joseph's final test, beginning in verse 15. Jacob is dead. He has just passed away. In the the previous section that we looked at, they took him back to Canaan and buried him there with uh, Abraham and Isaac. And immediately, Joseph's brothers are worried. Verse 15, they say, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And there's some irony here. Because now it's 1 versus 11. It's one person with all the power. Joseph is second in command in Egypt. The 11 have no power. The brothers are really at the will of Joseph. And the irony is that in chapter 37... It was 10 verses 1. Benjamin was not yet old enough to be a part of what went on, but it was 10 verses 1. They had all the power, and they threw him in a pit and left him to die. Now the tables are turned. The brothers are out in Goshen, and they are sitting ducks. Can you imagine? Like, is Joseph just going to send some huge army and just destroy us? They don't know. And again... Rightfully so, he could, right? But they come up with a plan. Jacob's last words. They send a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Notice the language here. Your father, (laughs) right? Joseph was the favorite son. Say to your father, 
Not to our father, say to your father. They're really trying to make things right here. But you read this and you're like, yeah, right. There's no way that Jacob said this, right? There's no way that Jacob said this on his deathbed to all the brothers and not to Joseph. Joseph was there when Jacob died. Joseph was the favorite son. If Jacob was going to tell anyone, he would have told Joseph himself. He would have said, hey, take it easy on the boys, right? So this is a total lie. There's no way that Jacob said these things. And what is the reaction at the end of verse 17? Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph weeps because he can't believe after everything they have been through, after all that they have done in, in verse In chapter 45, he reminds them, don't be angry with yourselves. God is the one who sent me before you. He told them, I'm not going to take you out. And he weeps here because he can't believe that after all of that, that they still don't trust him. And that they still don't trust God. Verse 18, I love this. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, We are your servants. That's a great fulfillment of Joseph's dreams there, isn't it? At the very end, they come before him and fall down before him. Exactly what God showed Joseph, what was going to happen. And Joseph passes the final test of his life. He proves that his hope is in God by not taking out his vengeance by not taking matters into his own hands. I think this is probably the most beautiful picture of human forgiveness and human reconciliation that we have in the whole Bible. This family that was torn apart at the end of all of this, finally coming back together, being reconciled to one another. And Joseph, he holds all the cards, right? What does he say? Verse 19, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? For am I in the place of God? In other words, he's saying, do I have the power to punish you or to make you my servants? From a human perspective, he did, sure. But that's God's job, right? It's God's job To see that justice is met. It's God's job. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to Joseph. He's telling his brothers, look to God for forgiveness. It's him you have offended in in everything that you've done to me. Now there's tremendous value in human forgiveness and in human reconciliation. We need that to have healthy relationships. But the foundation of all of that is Forgiveness from God and reconciliation with God. Without that, these reconciliation and forgiveness in our human relationships can't have the power that it needs. It needs to be built on the foundation of God's forgiveness and God's us being reconciled to God. Joseph says a second time in verse 21, do not fear. Do not fear. He says, I will provide for you and your little ones. You took everything 
away from me. You robbed me of my childhood. I sat there in prison all those years. You took everything from me. But I'm going to provide for you. Again, it's only trusting in God that can make someone live that way. That can make someone say and do such a thing. And then it says that he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Mercy triumphed over judgment. God's mercy had triumphed over judgment in Joseph's own life. And now he acts in a way that pictures that. Verse 20, kind of the the theme verse here, is sandwiched between do not fear. Two times, do not fear. Do not fear, brothers, because God did this. Don't be afraid of me and what I'm going to do to you because God is the one who did it. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. We've seen this theme, right? Good versus evil throughout the book of Genesis. Think all the way back to chapter 2. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you will surely die. Good, evil, death. Genesis is bookended by these themes. Good, evil here in the end, and now life. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The message is trust and obey the Lord. Right? The message to Adam and Eve was trust what God has told you and obey him. Here the message is trust and obey the Lord. Good and evil are in his hands. God meant it. It means he planned it. He intended it. He devised it. He's not surprised by it. He doesn't have to react to what happens. He doesn't have to come up with a plan B. God planned it. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All of Joseph's suffering, all the evil that was done to him was part of a bigger plan. It was part of God's purpose for his life and the lives of many other people. I wonder, do we today, in our lives, in our world, do we see with the same eyes of faith that Joseph saw with? Can we honestly say that the bad things that have been done to us in our life, the evil things that others have maybe willfully and maliciously done to us, can we say that, can we acknowledge that those things are a part of God's bigger plan? They are a part of the bigger picture. Now, I don't want to be dismissive here. I don't want to say, well, you just need to have a right view of God's sovereignty and, and his power, and then, you know, it's all good. It'll all just pass away. I want to read again from J.C. Rowell's autobiography, and this was before the quote that I read previously. 
He talks about how uh, he became a Christian. He had become a Christian about four years before his father went bankrupt. And he says, if I hadn't been a Christian, I don't know if I wouldn't have committed, committed suicide. Um, it, it was such a desperate time and a desperate situation. And he talks about how everyone around him saw how he responded and it appeared as if he was so content and he handled things so well. And that was on the outside. But he says, never was there a more complete mistake God alone knows how the iron entered into my soul and how my whole frame, body, mind, and spirit reeled and were shaken to the foundation under the blow of my father's ruin. Of course, I know it was all right. God had planned it as its outcome showed. But I am quite certain it inflicted a wound on my body and mind of which I feel the effects most heavily at this day and shall feel it if I live to be a hundred To suppose that people do not feel things because they do not scream and yell and fill the air with their cries is simple nonsense. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to carry the pain with you, maybe your whole life, for what others have done to you. Joseph wept, and this isn't the first time. We saw it previously. On many occasions. Can we get to the place in our lives where we can say, there are no wasted tears. There is no wasted pain. There is no wasted suffering. As you talk with friends who are struggling or you think about your own life and your own struggles. Can you honestly say that? All the tears, all the pain, all the suffering, it's not wasted because God has a purpose for it. It's okay to weep. It's okay to hurt. But it doesn't stop there. We got to take that next step and embrace it and say, I don't know how this makes no sense, but I believe that God is good. I believe that he meant it for good. Whether it's Maybe the death of a loved one, whether it's a personal loss or a personal failure, or again, just something someone has done to you. Can we say, along with Paul in Romans 8.28, which was in our New Testament reading, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the message of Jacob's life of his faith in God. It is a life well lived. It's a life that is to be emulated. And it is a life that we finally see here come to an end with Joseph's final request. We're told here in the beginning of this next section, beginning in verse 22, of the blessings that he has of seeing Ephraim's children to the third generation. He sees his great-great-grandchildren. And it's been 50 years that have passed since the death of his father Jacob. So we, we go from verse 21 really to verse 22 with a 50-year with a gap in there. And that would appear to mean that there's peace between the brothers, right? That they have been reconciled, that they're, they've lived out their days. The time has come for Joseph to breathe his last breath. And his final request to his brothers begins with a promise. 
And it's a promise that sums up the whole book of Genesis. And it answers the greatest question that we can ask. I think the greatest question that we can ask isn't, does God intend evil for good? Which is a very important question. But the greatest, the greatest question that confronts the reader as we come to the end of the 50th chapter of Genesis is, will God keep his promises? It's a promise that began in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against the Lord and a curse was brought upon them, the curses of sin and death upon the whole human race. But there was a promise, a promise that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That promise then began to become more clear as God called Abraham to himself in chapter 12. And he promised him offspring, and he promised him land. And as we've mentioned numerous times, especially in the last several weeks looking at Joseph's life, God made a promise in chapter 15 to Abraham that his descendants would be sojourners, that they would be servants, and that they would be afflicted for 400 years in a foreign land. Well, this is the foreign land. This is where they are now in Egypt. The promise of of descendants and land was repeated to Isaac and to Jacob. But now Jacob is dead. And the question is, will God keep his promises through Jacob's sons? And the answer we see is a resounding yes. Joseph tells his brothers, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then he makes the brothers swear to bring his bones up out of Egypt, and he repeats the words, God will surely visit you. This word here for visit can be translated as take care of you or come to your aid. It's not just that God will be there. It's not just his presence, but it's his personal care and his help. And we see this translated here in the ESV the second time he says it um, in verse 25, God will surely visit you. There's actually no Hebrew word for surely. The the way it literally reads in the Hebrew is, God will visit, visit you. So the word is just repeated twice, and that means surely visit. He will certainly do it. Um, Actually, in in, uh, the garden, when God says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It is, you will die, die. So this is very strong language here. It's a strong promise. God will visit, visit you. And God will bring you up. Not only will he come to your aid, certainly come to your aid, he will also bring you up from here. He will deliver you. And this is language that is used in the Exodus. What's your heart reaction when you hear this? Maybe you think, well, it would be nice if God would visit me once in a while. It would be nice if God would come to my aid once in a while. Or you might say, God has visited me. God has been gracious to me. Have we experienced this? Have we experienced God coming to our aid? God taking care of us? If you're a Christian, then you must say yes. Though you might not feel it all the time, I think we do all have this longing 
deep inside of us. We have a longing to be visited by God. We have a a longing to be helped and to be taken care of by God. I hope that in your life you can point to times or, or currently how God has, has visited you, how God helps you, how God cares for you. If you look at the front of your worship guide, there's a great quote on there by Derek Kidner. He says, the book of Genesis, like the Old Testament in microcosm, ends by pointing beyond its own story. The promise of the future exodus was signified as well as spoken and would germinate one day in the mind of Moses to awaken him to his mission. Joseph's dying words epitomized the hope in which the Old Testament and indeed the New would fall into expectant silence. God will surely visit you. Kidner says that Genesis points beyond its own story. And let's hope so, right? Because what kind of story ends with these words? And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's not the way we want the story to end, right? It better point beyond something after that. So we are left here. 50 chapters we've been going through in Genesis And we're left with these words. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. We are left with a great longing. A longing for God to visit his people. A longing to see, to ask, are they going to make it out of Egypt? Will God keep his promises to his people? Will the brothers carry up Joseph's bones as he made them swear? If we keep reading as most of us have probably done, even as we see God's great deliverance in Exodus, even as we see Joseph finally being buried in the promised land at the end of the book of Joshua, we see the Old Testament people of God longing for the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God would visit them. Kidner talks about the the silence, the expectant silence Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have 400 years of silence. And one of the first words, one of the first proclamations that we see of of what God is doing in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 1. After John the Baptist is born and just before Jesus is born, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesies. He makes this prophecy concerning Jesus, the Messiah. This is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 68. Pay attention to these words. Pay attention to the language here and the themes that are related to what we've just been looking at. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God has visited and redeemed his people, he says. 
In Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. And it says, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. But unfortunately, despite the bold prediction of Zechariah, despite all that Jesus would accomplish, despite the positive reactions to his miracles, he was still rejected and killed. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. People are gathered from all the nations, gathered from all over the known world in Jerusalem. And again, this is kind of a picture of, of Genesis 12 being fulfilled, the blessing going out to all the nations. Listen to what Peter says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay? God's sovereignty. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Man's responsibility. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What they meant for evil. What we meant for evil. Though we weren't there physically, right? We were there. We are responsible. We share in their guilt. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many should be kept alive. The crucified and risen Lord Jesus, he is the only hope that we have. The only hope that our world has for being kept alive. That is the message of the gospel. And that is our only hope. And that's what we celebrate as we come this morning to this table. We come to proclaim that God has visited his people. God has visited and redeemed his people by sending his son to die on the cross. To take the punishment that we deserved. His body was broken and his blood was poured out so that we might be saved. So that we might have new life. Talk about this a lot. When we come to the table, there's this element of looking back, right? We look back to to Jesus' first coming, we look back to his death, his burial, his resurrection. God visited his people. He fulfilled the promise. He fulfilled what Zechariah said was going to happen. But we don't stop there. We look forward in hope and in expectation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we eat and when we drink, we proclaim his death until he comes. Right? God visited his people at Jesus' first coming, and he will visit us again when he returns. And that is something we need to set our hope on. That is the hope that allows us in the midst of pain and suffering and, and trials in this world to say, God means it for good. Because Jesus is coming back. And he will make all things right. I love the picture of, of Joseph there saying, am I in the place of God, right? Am I in the place of to judge? No. But when Jesus comes back and makes all things right, he will. 
and he will judge faithfully and he will judge justly. And that is our reminder and our warning this morning. This table is open to anyone who has professed faith in Christ, who has trusted Jesus alone for their salvation. If you have done that, you are welcome to come to the table. And if you're not yet a Christian, we would ask that you would refrain from taking the elements. And we would love to talk to you about what it means to trust Christ for your salvation. What it means to be a Christian. To, to live your life for Jesus. If I could have the servers come forward at this time. Uh, there's red wine and white grape juice. Uh, there's also gluten-free wafers. If you need them. Uh, we will come down, we will take the elements, and uh, then we'll take the elements, return to our seats, and we'll all partake together. Uh, children who are not taking the elements, we will uh, pray for them. <laughs> all right, you can come forward whenever you're ready. <laughs>